You're listening to Policy Room by SPRF. Hello and welcome to SPRF's podcast series. We have a very distinguished speaker today. On today's podcast, we have Dr. Satyake Roy with us. Dr. Roy is an uh, associate professor at the Institute for Studies in Industrial Development, New Delhi. He is also the author of a recently published book, Contours of Value Capture, India's Neoliberal Path to Industrial Development. Dr. Roy has worked extensively on research projects with the Government of India. He's worked with the Planning Commission. He's worked with the Department of Science and Technology. So, Dr. Roy, it's a pleasure to have you here with us today with SPRF to, you know, take us through a topic that I feel is quite pertinent. And I mean, uh, it's an institution which I feel symbolizes India to a large extent, you know, keeping in mind our history. And it has come into the relevance a lot in light of uh, the migrant crisis. We have seen the railways being spoken about a lot. So the topic of discussion, to get a little more specific, is in July, the 1st of July this year, the government of railways came out with a notification saying we're going to uh, invite private sector investments into the Indian railways, right? So the chairman of the railway board has gone on to say that we'll be calling for, um, this is only applicable to 5% of our uh, passenger trains as of now. The government of India is hoping to raise about 30,000 crores and they're saying that we will have uh, about 109 uh, trains. So the intent supposedly that the government uh, is laying behind this move is that they're saying, you know, we want to modernize the Indian railways. We want to, and we want to reduce the demand supply gap in passenger transport. So no one really denies that the Indian railways is in uh, it's in a difficult spot uh, if one could describe it that way so uh, dr roy coming to that do you think you know this move by uh, the government of india is the right way to you know address this issue of modernizing and uh, increasing the capacity of the indian railways okay let me begin by saying that as you have mentioned that the government has come out with a vision document of uh, Railways 2030 Mm -hmm. and where it says that uh, it wants to modernize and also to expand the capacity of railways as you mentioned and uh, the immediate proposal is that uh, uh, they want investment uh, to do all this and the government doesn't have that much of money, the same kind of argument which is usually given in other sectors also. I'll come to that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they roughly require about 50 lakh crores of investment to do all this in by 2030. And in order to do that, uh, they have identified around 109 busy routes and there would be 151 trains would be handed over to private players and that would be for 35 years because usually the uh, service life of uh, these rolling stocks, engines and uh, uh, train bogies is about 30 years. So, so these busy routes would be handed over to private players for 35 years to do business 
and this as as you know that it has been divided into 12 clusters and these clusters should operate as independent business projects so these would be handed to particular companies to manage these particular clusters now coming to the question of privatization i would first of all say that this is not that it is happening only in india if you see the global experience there had been a, a privatization spree particularly pre 2000 and the sectors which are mostly uh, chosen for privatization are basically you can say energy infrastructure and then you have finance and mining these are the four major sectors and you do not find uh, much cases of privatization in manufacturing these days it is basically these four sectors where the privatization is taking place and uh, coming to the question of railways it has happened in britain it has happened in argentina in developing countries it is happening in in bangladesh in new zealand it has happened in japan china and all these countries are basically trying to uh, manage these railways through uh, privatizing Uh, public sector or public uh, management is gradually being privatized now the question is how relevant it is for india but before coming to that apart from the countries that we see uh, which have privatized uh, during this period the international experience also suggests because world bank has come up with a study which mentions uh, a, a, a sample of around 150 countries and they have surveyed the process of privatization that have taken place and the study suggests that pre 2000 the uh, the number of privatization that has happened in these countries of large and medium public enterprises is more than 8000 but if you consider then i'm i'm talking about a period of 1988 to 1998 so if you just take this 10 years the number of privatization that has taken place is more than 8000 across these countries now but if you consider the period post 2000 it has drastically dropped to about 140 it is close to 2000 only so what i am saying that even if there is a trend of privatization which is going on because of the world bank and imf policies late policies basically new liberal policies where everything has to be determined by the market forces and uh, and also you have to establish private property where you have public ownership so this was going on with a great speed in pre 2000 particularly covering oecd countries and latin american countries but now the geography of privatization has shifted in post 2000 first of all the number has declined in advanced countries you will not find much privatization taking place these days because there are a lot of lot of contentious issues emerging particularly for the sectors which cater to the larger section of the population related to services like transport like water sewage and all this electricity so so the privatization the speed of privatization has declined even in advanced countries in pre 2000 to post 2000 but in developing countries again we will see in case of south asia and particularly transitional economics and eastern europe where you find this privatization is taking place 
And in that context, I think that this is nothing new which the government of India is thinking. It is not actually originating, as they say, that because of the reasons of the financial problems and kind of uh, stress that the railway is facing, so we have to privatize. I don't think that it is driven by the necessities that have emerged internally. Rather, it is a larger process of, of, of selling public sector assets to big corporates and multinational companies. Because as you know, that in railways, in several kinds of activities, 100% FDI is now allowed. So foreign players are also invited to uh, uh, take part in this uh, process of privatization. It's interesting that you mentioned that the, this doesn't necessarily have to do with what is happening, I mean, just internally to India, but it's part of a, a, a global phenomenon. It's interesting you mentioned that because um, the Ministry of Railways, in a submission to the Standing Committee uh, of the 17th Lok Sabha, uh, it, it, it made a quite, uh, quite an interesting submission in saying that there are certain factors uh, that are beyond the control of the Ministry of Railways such as, and it happened to mention a number of factors. So one of them, uh, like you just hinted at, is the demand in, it's an overall slump in the economy. And that I think we could relate it to an extent uh, to the decline in freight loading. Uh, you could probably go into a little more uh, detail on that, uh, which is pertinent to the Indian railways in particular because 67% uh, or uh, more or less of uh, the railway's uh, revenue receipts comes from freight, right? Um, so in light of a sort of a pessimistic overall economic outlook, how do you view the Indian railways sort of going forward? Here? Okay, so of course there are some, uh, uh, some fact tendencies which we see within the functioning of the railways. Which, which I also do think are part of this whole process in the sense that, as you mentioned, that the, the economic slump that has affected all sectors and it has also affected railways. And it has affected railways in terms of finance, as you mentioned, that railway is, revenue is largely dependent upon goods freight and around 67% and roughly 32% comes from passenger tickets. So the government's argument is that the operating ratio is very high compared to other countries. And so you have a little surplus. And if you want to expand and modernize, you cannot do without with that surplus. And you have to depend upon foreign players as well as private players. Now, coming to the question how it has affected this freight and passenger travel, uh, I would say that uh, in case of goods uh, freight, the change that has basically happened is that the importance given to roadways have been asymmetric in the sense that government uh, uh, has given much more importance to roads. Investment has grown to roadways, which are basically resource uh, uh, from motor vehicle sets. So um, any, anyone who is paying motor vehicle sets even uh, uh, someone in any part of the country would be providing resources for a road development in a particular in particular region. So what I'm saying that there is a general policy of mobilizing funds for roadways, but in case of railways, you'll find it basically depends upon 
debt-free transfer, what has happened in roadways, it is not the case in case of railways. Basically, the central government, uh, they give some loans and capital investment basically depends upon non-budgetary resources, which is uh, financing, uh, uh, railway finance corporation, they mobilize funds from the market and other ways of mobilizing. So more and more your operating ratio is higher so you basically, in case of railways, you are depending upon this uh, extra budgetary resources. And so railway is becoming indebted. There is a possibility, even if they're producing surplus, but there is a possibility if it goes on like that, then they would not have enough money uh, for this kind of investment uh, that is required for restructuring and modernization. But why this is happening? See, in case of goods, what is important that when you give more importance to roads and road has developed during this period of time for short distance, uh, what has happened uh, in case of passengers that they have shifted to uh, road transport rather than rail transport. In case of goods transfer, if you see that the major freight, the composition of freight, if you see, it comes 43% of that comes from coke. Now, government has come out with a policy that now the, the thermal power stations would be located near the pitheads of coal mines. So it should be closer to mines. So there are less chance or less probability of coal being moved from one place to another. And at the same time, as, as you develop, you basically try to depend upon renewable energy and you shift from coal to other kinds of energy. So if your freight basically depends upon movement of coal, which is in the tune of 43%, as the movement of coal declines, then, you, then your freight also declines. The other thing is with the development of road, if you see FMCG and, 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 and automobiles, hazardous chemicals, which are basically moved from one place to another, they have shifted from railways to roadways. So they are basically depending upon road transport because of the speed and because of the guarantee of what you can say, maintaining the time schedule, which is possible in case of roadways, which is which may not be the case in case of goods carriage in Indian railways. So they are moving from railways to uh, road transport. In case of, in case of passenger train, uh, passenger tickets, I would say the problem is that, as I said, that for short distance, People are moving out from rail and opting for road transport. The second is you cannot easily increase the price of tickets. Now, I would say that uh, it is a problem for a country like India, where even today, the large section of the population who opt for rail transport are basically poor and lower middle class people. And here, the market demand is really price elastic. So even if you want to increase the price, there would be a drastic fall in demand. And that has happened. There is evidence because you look at the CAG report on railways, you will find that after this uh, flexi fare system has been introduced, there is a drop in passenger carriage. Number of passengers carried by railways have declined because of this, particularly in the upper segment. So in the upper segments like AC3 tire and things like that, in those segments also, price is demand elastic. Uh, 
So you cannot easily raise the price for passenger traffic. The, uh, the third important point regarding this passenger uh, tickets is that now air travel is more or less competitive for certain segments of uh, air, uh, uh, train travel. So, and this is being recognized by the government also in certain regions and certain routes, even uh, because of the, this uh, uh, low air uh, price, what has happened that uh, people have moved from uh, trains to uh, flight. And that has also created the problem that you cannot easily raise the price of or, or the passenger ticket price. So what I'm saying that there is a problem of generating revenue, and that has probably prompted this government to look for uh, investment elsewhere. But my point is that all this is happening because there is low investment on the part of the government. You have to expand the railways. Railway tracks need to be expanded. They are, the congestion in certain routes, the capacity utilization is around 100%. So if you want to expand and if you want to maintain time, if you want to provide a competitive, uh, a comparable advantage vis-a-vis -vis road transport to railways, even to goods uh, uh, carriage, there has to be certain a certain investment that has to take place. And, and you have to modernize your uh, your uh, rail tracks you have to modernize your uh, uh, maintenance of these of, of the railways you have to modernize the signaling system and all these are required which requires investment of course currently if you see the finance is little stressed and uh, that might be given as a reason uh, or for the as a rational for privatization but i would say that the investment which were to be done, which was supposed to be done by the government, if you're not doing that, and then if you say that the operating ratio is very high, and so you do not have surplus, and so you have to privatize, then that is basically making an argument of privatization only. And and and, and it is not actually derived from uh, the, the conditions which emerge. The conditions emerge basically because of the economic slowdown, the conditions have emerged because of the particular structure of traffic and, and conditions emerged because of the changes that have happened in the economic scenario, in the production process. And rail has to has to respond to that. And since you are a, you are a public sector, so the government has a particular role to, uh, the, uh, uh, to do that, to do the necessary investments and uh, modernization is required rather than just observing and then selling out the public sector to private players. Uh, Dr. Roy, just two points just going off from where um, the, the remarks that you made. Um, you mentioned uh, this is something that came up uh, during our study also of the railway in general. Um, the, the, the importance of low-cost airlines, and that's something that you mentioned. But even considering that factor, when, when you look at um, the numbers in terms of um, the, the number of seats, either when you classify them as, say, um, the seats classified as upper class seats or as uh, secondary uh, uh, seats, we see that there is a definite increase in the proportion either in terms of the uh, number of passengers or in terms of revenue 
of uh, there is a trend that is seen of the importance of upper class seats as opposed to uh, the uh, the more the seats that are used by the majority of uh, indians traveling by rail there is a trend towards uh, you know an increase in upper class um, fares and uh, number of passengers increasing so that is one observation that i think is important to note of, uh, to note in light of um, uh, this conversation and secondly you also mentioned um, you made a number of uh, you listed a number of industries i think around four in which there is a trend uh, towards privatization post 2000 um, mining was one of them and you also mentioned that you know 43% of uh the rail freight comes from coal which is also important because uh, as we know there is also a proposal to commercialize uh the indian coal sector coal mining uh, the government has uh, i think they have received bids for around 19 uh, of the initial list of 41 coal mines and one of the points that was made there is that you know imported coal is cheaper to a large extent because of the rail freight uh, being so high when you have a lot of your thermal power plants being situated along the coast and things like that it's difficult to transport uh, uh, coal from states like jharkhand chatisgarh so given that do you think the uh, the to slightly digress do you think that argument is justified in this context for regarding uh, regarding the number of passengers in upper class this a bit the number of passengers who are moving opting for uh, air travel i'd say that it is true what you mentioned that the number of passengers has slightly increased and the in terms of proportion of revenue also because now you can charge a higher price it is not a fixed price in flexi fare so for um, higher upper classes uh, the revenue which has been generated by this process in proportion has increased but at the same time it also mentions that because of this flexi fare the number of passengers total number of passengers that have been after this this new uh, process have been introduced there is a drop in the number of passengers particularly in ac3 car and other things where people are opting just think that if you did not have uh, the, the kind of options that we have to travel uh, in in flight then the whole the whole uh, number of passengers would actually they have opted for railway uh, railways only so there is a shift and you have to compete with the you cannot say that the earlier situation is better what i am suggesting that you have to respond to this new situation where air uh, travel is competing with the railways and accordingly you have to provide services you have to provide a certain kind of amenities so that you can attract passengers in terms of price also you can attract passengers from uh, uh, air travel to to railways particularly in the upper segment but still what is important that if you take the total size of revenue that is being generated in passenger traffic 
the larger portion still now comes even if it is subsidized in the sense that it is the ticket price is less than the cost. But the total amount of money which is being generated, the larger portion still comes from the uh, 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 the second class and, and, and third class passengers. And there the demand is really price elastic. And it is not only functioning of the market. The point is that many people would not have any option if you basically privatize the railway and allow the price to increase. So a larger section of the population would not get the advantage of traveling from one place to another if the price of tickets increase, at least if it increases in a substantial uh, amount. So that would create a problem. The, uh, the, the other point regarding the school and, uh, and the kind of commercialization that the government is thinking. Now, one is that there are several commodities where you can say that the import price is less than the cost of production in India. And that is the point of liberalization, where you are basically saying that, okay, if you can get the product at a lower price in the global market, why should you produce this? Now, of course, this is the argument which can be made in every sector, considering the kind of technology which is being used in mostly Western countries, the choices which have been determined, the preferences which have been conditioned by Western uh, uh, markets, they actually dominate the process of creating technology. So even if you consider, take the case of car industry, take the case of other industries also, anyone can argue, even for rice, in food grains also you can argue and the government that did that that if you can get a rice from Thailand at a lower price, why should you produce this? Now, this kind of argument is basically responding to immediate situations. It can happen for, for very short period of time. You can argue like that. But you are basically not creating the productive capacity of the economy. In case of coal, I would say that, of course, this is an important argument, that if you can situate the thermal power plants near the coal pit, then the cost, transaction cost reduces. The transaction cost gets reduced, and because of that, you can, you can have a policy to have thermal power plants near these coal pits. That would affect, even if you are not importing, I'm saying, so what I'm saying that the impact upon Indian railways is going to happen in any case, in the sense that if you are not having the thermal power plants where it were and the coal was supposed to be carried from one state to another, if that is not the case, then the freight which is being earned earlier through carrying coals is in any case going to decline is in any case going to decline. So you have to think of other baskets of goods. Railway has to plan, not, not that it is that, that it is people want to move or carry only coal from one place to another. Many goods are being carried. Why they are not opting for railways? That the railway management has to think. That why FMCG is not opting for rail tracks or railways to carry their products why the automobile industry is not using that. You cannot depend upon coal only. So even if the need of carrying coal declines, which would inevitably decline, even if you are not importing, the issue of importing coals and commercialization of coal sector is another aspect. But what I'm saying, then even if you are not importing, then also the demand for carrying coal in eventually is going to decline. And so you cannot depend your freight revenue 
only on carrying coals, a large part, which is around 43%. Um, just to sort of historicize this debate, I mean, it has come into practicality now in 2020. But, you know, at least within Indian policy circles, the argument towards rationalizing train fares, um, financial reforms within uh, the Indian railways, or for that matter, administrative reforms within the railway board. These are not, you know, they aren't like really new arguments. We have seen that even during the 18s, you had the Sarin committee uh, recommending a number of reforms along this direction. And this is something that has uh, been viewed in common across dispensations. It's not that, uh, you know, you have this dispensation in particular. Even when you had the Sam Petroda committee in 2012, uh, when their report on modernizing uh, railways came out, this is something that um, the committee recommended then also. Thanks for tuning into this episode when Nikhil Matthew, research associate at SPRF, discussed the issue of railway privatization in India with Dr. Satyaki Roy. Stay tuned for part two, where the conversation continues. See you next time at Policy Room, produced by the Social and Political Research Foundation.